Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest spent 15 years in finance managing a billion-dollar fixed-income portfolio before he quit his nine-to-five job and abandoned his life in Chicago to pursue the life he always wanted but never thought was possible. He currently lives in Mexico, where he now practices and teaches futures and forex trading. He is the host of the Peddling Fiction podcast, where he opines on politics, current events, and economics from a libertarian perspective. Please welcome to the show, Johnny Profita. Johnny, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you again. You as well. I'm looking forward to today's conversation and picking your brain about many of these things. So maybe before we jump in, kind of give us a backstory. How did you get working in finance and specifically the Forex and the fixed income that you did in Chicago? But then really, I guess, how you decided to leave that and give it all up and come down to Mexico? Yeah, well, I basically fell into the job. I was a pretty typical millennial American story, I guess, you know, you go to college, you don't exactly know what you're going to study. And I picked the major that made the most sense to me at the time that sort of played to my strength. I was a history major. And then of course I graduated and realized that there aren't a lot of things you can do with a history degree other than teach history, maybe some research or something like that. And my old man worked in finance for his entire career. And so I was going around talking to some of his friends and eventually one of them gave my resume to this company and I started, they offered me a a grunt work position, really entry-level finance. And I just, I started there. I liked the people I worked with. I was always interested in economics, but man, the way they teach it to you in school just bores you to death and confuses the hell out of everybody. They make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. But I stuck with it and I sort of fell into Austrian economics from there and libertarianism. And yeah, so I just started managing that portfolio for a while. Fixed income was a a good place, I think, to start for me because it's not very complicated. I would always joke that, you know, if I could do it, a monkey could do it. And from there, it was right around the just before the 2008 financial collapse. Actually, I started in October of 2007. And so the economy just went to hell in a handbasket right as I was starting. So that sort of helped fuel my interest and everything, because you're hearing all these ridiculous excuses for what's going on. (laughs) You know, we have to abandon free market capitalism (laughs) to save the free market system. George Bush's famous quote. 
And yeah, so I, I started getting into economics a lot more there. And then I started to really get into technical analysis because I'm sort of an emotional guy. Like I, I can't handle a lot of stress and things like that. And so trying to analyze the markets and take into factors, all these political factors and things like that never made sense to me. So I gravitated towards the technical analysis where you just kind of look at a chart and look for patterns and things like that. So you went from being a very emotional person to a fixed income type of investment, which kind of seems like the absolute opposite of what you would expect someone who would excel at fixed income, because that seems very like logical and mathematics. Yes. And math was also not uh, not one of my strong points, which is <laughs> why I chose history as a major. Yeah, I don't know. There's part of me that's sort of fascinated by it, but I think I just like the rules about it. Like I don't trust myself to manage things. So I come up with basically like a set of rules that I must abide by. And then I can sort of test those historically. We, we call it back testing. And as long as I follow those rules to a T, I know that I can be profitable over time. And so that's sort of what I gravitated towards. I can understand this one completely because I traded options not at a professional level, but at a retail level, but for you know seven or eight years. And the biggest mistakes that I ever made was because of emotions. And I actually remember reading a book at the closer to the end of my trading career. I wish it had been at the beginning, but it was called What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars. And I'm sure that if I had have read that book at the beginning and set up these types of rules at the very beginning, I also would have probably not lost a million dollars. I didn't do it in one transaction, but I did it definitely over uh, several transactions. And I think that for people like us who are emotional and, and get involved, need to have these guardrails in place Otherwise, you get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the psychology of trading is also sort of fascinating to me. You hear all of these horror stories and people will tell you, you know, don't get emotional and don't do this and don't do that. As soon as you click that button and you get into a trade, you feel all of those emotions and it takes every ounce of your willpower to not give in to them. Well, from my, I'm, I'm thinking back on some really not fun memories, but I mean, I remember my pregnant wife and she's fast asleep next to me and staring at the ceiling, thinking about some of my positions and ones that I knew I should have got into or got out of before, but just kind of watching them go further and further underwater and it being three o'clock in the morning and I can't sleep. Like I've been staring at the ceiling for six hours straight, seven hours straight. How do I tell my wife that we just lost like, you know, two, $300,000 over the last couple of months? on these positions. And if I go ahead and liquidate the position, okay, I stopped the bleeding, but now those are realized losses. And like, <laughs> it makes me want to vomit. Like I would be so sick to my stomach thinking about these things. Yeah. I'm a little surprised I still have most of my hair, but I think it's probably because I don't have, I don't have a wife and kids to support. So it's just me. And, you know, if I screw things up, at least I'm the only one that has to deal with the fallout from it. But yeah, man, there are some positions that'll keep you up at night. There are some trades or, or investments that I've done in the past, you know, 10, 15 years ago that I'm still sick over. But yeah, it's all sort of part of the game. You roll with the punches. 
people always say, oh, the best way to learn is from your mistakes. Personally, I could have done without a couple of those mistakes. I would rather have learned from someone else's mistakes, like the book that I referenced, which is anybody who has a wants to understand the psychology of trading, I definitely recommend reading. But tell me about some of the rules that you have set up that has kind of kept you within your lane and made sure that you maybe don't repeat the mistakes you did at the beginning of your career. Yeah, well, so... When I first started actually trading on my own, it was all sort of pattern recognition based. And so I came up with very strict rules of engagement. You know, I called it uh, building a case for entry. And I would have certain levels based on Fibonacci tools, like in order for the pattern to form, it had to hit the 618 retracement and then the the B to C leg must touch this level, must touch that level. So like A, B, and C had to happen to the tick before I could get into a trade. And I think that helped me a lot. Managing my risk and my position size, I would never risk more than like 1% of my account. And I, I started with really small trade, you know, risking $50 at a time until you you get used to trading, you get used to the emotional roller coasters that you're going to be on. And that way, at least you're not sitting up at night thinking about a position that you're in because it's too big of a position. If you're getting to that point where you're thinking about it when you're not looking at your screen, you've overextended yourself. Yeah, I think positioning size right now is absolutely the name of the game. And I don't know why it's not the first thing that is taught in the world of trading. Now, I think responsible is a 1% to 2% overall look at the allocation. And no, personally, I don't do any sector, which is more than 10%. So I've got 10 sectors that 10 theses, 10 ideas that I might be looking at, and none of them have more than 10%. And no position has over one or 2% of the overall portfolio. I don't do much trading anymore, but I have a, a background in it. And I still keep a little bit of equities. But geez, those are, this episode could be called What I Wish I Had Known at the Beginning or How to Not Lose Money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you got to do all the tedious stuff too, like the back testing, which is like, probably my least favorite thing in the world to do is like you come up with this trading strategy, you think it works and you have to go back through maybe years worth of market data and test it. And then, you know, enter that data into Excel, figure out what your maximum drawdown is, your profit and loss, what you stand to lose, what you stand to gain. If you do this over time, are you going to be successful? And it is torture, literal torture doing that. But once you do it, it gives you a lot more confidence while you're actually trading to know if you know your numbers and you know, okay, if if my maximum drawdown is more than 15%, I need to, I screwed something up. I need to take a break here because it's way outside my parameters. So it's not just all, I think people have this dream of trading where you're just going to turn a, a $10,000 account into a million in six months or something like that. You hear, you see these guys on YouTube and Instagram and stuff posting these ridiculous things. And I don't know if they're actually doing it or if it's, you know, it's just some demo account that they're messing with, but it's really not like that. At least it should, that should not be your expectation. It's a grind. You have to treat it very professionally. You can't just like all willy nilly just hop into a chart and start taking trades. And yeah, like I said, 1% a day keeps the nine to five away. <laughs> That's my motto. Amazing. Yeah, I think that a lot of people do have visions of grandeur where they're going to try out trading and they're going to make a full-time living as a trader. 
I would say that if you don't already have a very in-depth background about these things, you can expect to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars on the front end before you ever get good enough that you're going to be able to use this as a viable means to provide for yourself and your family. Yeah, you will absolutely blow up at least one account. <laughs> like that happens to everybody. It's a yeah. <laughs> I've blown up a couple of accounts and this goes back to my previous story and until I just gave up at the end. Like now, as I said, I don't I don't trade. I have some equities, but I came from an options background. So when you're using margin accounts and derivatives, you make a mistake and it is exponentially larger than the initial mistake. So that's absolutely true. And so I kind of liked the way that I got into it because I was never I only started doing this basically for a living within the last three years. And for six or seven years before that, I was just sort of learning and studying and practicing. And I had a nine to five job. So, you know, that was fine. Like I I wasn't dependent on it. And then when you flip the switch and you're like, all right, I think I can actually make a go of this. It does put a whole new sense of pressure on you. So three years from the retail side, but then the 10, 15 years before that was on the institutional side with the company, right? Your nine to five. Yeah, with yeah, other yeah. people's money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other people's money. That's the differentiating part. But at least you had a background to kind of go into it. I have some people who are, I'm not going to call out any of my clients, but maybe some dentists or some lawyers or some professionals who do a different type of career and then want to move over to trading as a full time. And I just always want people to understand like, yeah, what you see on YouTube or what you see in the movies or Instagram, as you mentioned, is not necessarily a fair representation of what it's going to take to get there on a retail professional level. Yeah. 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 You never see a, a bunch of videos about how people screwed up their lives trying to trade. It's only the success stories. And yeah, I would caution those people to learn a lot, learn as much as you can before you actually make that transition and see if this is actually something you want to do. Like I know, I know a lot of people that thought they wanted to try to do this as a living and it just, yeah, it wrecked them emotionally, financially. And it was just, it was one of the worst mistakes they've ever made. So I do think it's important knowledge to know, even if you're not going to engage and actively trade, you should still have some sort of knowledge about how to read a stock chart or some, or basic technical analysis. And that's one of the things that uh, I try to teach people. That's one of the lessons I just put out for free is, is that sort of thing where I'm just like, hey, I'm not trying to sell you anything. But at a minimum, even if you have a nine to five job, you, you're going to have a 401k and you might have a financial advisor. And when he calls you up and says, hey, I think this is a, you know, a good time for this stock or we should do this, you should have at least some sort of base of knowledge so that you're not completely flying blind. 100%. And I think that it's also important that if you want to get into something like this, you don't necessarily want to do it with a dummy account. I think it is good to use some real money to put it on the table, but make it at a much smaller level. Like if you can put a hundred grand in and you understand that this is your MBA that you're basically paying for in the trading world, and if it goes to zero, well, that sucks, but it's not going to bankrupt you. Before you'd be like, I'm going to put my... $3 million of net worth all into this and try it out because I had a couple of good ideas or because I saw Tesla go up or because I correctly picked Apple or something like that. It's like, 
No, we need to think this a little bit further. And then you can still do the positioning size that we're saying. Like that's a thousand dollars per stock and watch it and learn how it trades and moves and do that for a couple of years. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and expect expect to lose everything. Exactly. That's why I just think of it because I'd rather see someone do that if they were interested in investing than go to university to learn these types of things. I think that you will just care about it drastically more if it's your money on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't learn any of the stuff that I, I know now and that I apply in my my daily life in at school or college, other than, you know, basic arithmetic. I didn't learn any. It was all from people that have been doing it professionally, successfully for 10 to 30 years or something like that. And when you do see somebody that's been doing this for 30 years, I mean, yeah, they make it look really easy. And you're like, oh yeah, I could do this. This guy, this guy's just a couple clicks and he just made $12,000 in five minutes. But yeah, you can easily just lose it as much too. So yeah, make sure you're getting who you're taking advice from and lessons from is is important as well. Absolutely. Now, did you find that your background in history had a positive influence on your ability to see patterns or in your trading to kind of look at things from a much larger time horizon than someone who probably would not have that type of a background? Yeah. Absolutely. Actually. Yeah. The pattern recognition and just the ability to sort of analyze data and stuff like that. It, it did really help. Yeah. It was, it was basically between a history degree and an English degree <laughs> when I was in college. And I was like, all right, English degree, there's really only like one thing you can do with that. <laughs> At least with a history degree, I, I, you have a background in research and yeah, recognizing patterns and things like that. And so, yeah, it is it's absolutely helpful. And just sort of knowing, I try not to get bogged down in the political aspect of markets and things like that, because even if you're right about what's going to happen, you don't know if the market's going to react the way that you think it should to that news or something like that. But it does help to get a historical perspective and yeah, get those skills under under your belt. I think it's that's an interesting point because a lot of people want to invest and then they mix up ethics with investing. And I'm a very much an, a moral person and an ethical and, and honest person. But at the same time, I'm very much a realistic person. I think that people look at the world on how it should be and how we would like it to be, especially as libertarians and people who follow the non-aggression principle. But that is not necessarily the direction that the world is going by any means. So having a, a clear view of history of what we've gone through as a society, as a species, and then looking at the direction that we're heading now, and it's like trying to line these types of things up. Like I've had investments in things that people will go, wow, that those are such woke companies. I would never invest in them. I'm like, yeah, I don't agree with their politics at all, but look at what they're doing. And I mean, this is where all the money is flowing. So it's it's this hard to juggle some of the, the politics, the history, the direction, the economics, the morals, and the, the ethics of all of it. Yeah. And yeah, and the way you feel, like I've been predicting economic collapse for the last 12 years. You know, it's like if I invested based on my economic outlook, I'd be in a lot of trouble. You do have to sort of separate those two things, at least 
my style of trading and investing has to be that way. I do tend to be a lot more conservative with my investments. And, you know, one of the things I'm really struggling with right now in this environment is just trying to get a, a decent yield. I, I mean, like if I get 5%, I'm pretty happy, you know? And so there's a lot of people out there, maybe they have a bunch of cash laying around and it's just getting, you know, inflation's eating away at it. And maybe you can get a yield that sort of keeps up with the inflation that the the inflation rate that the government will admit to but you can't really fight where the money is flowing you just kind of have to recognize what's happening and put your your feelings aside and and try to make some money absolutely and i think that a lot of people kind of misunderstand because going back to the ethical debate a lot of people don't understand that if you're investing in a company it's actually that company in most cases never sees that money. We're, this is all secondary market. Their initial public offering was maybe a year ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 100 years ago. So if you're investing in, I don't know, let's use a, a cigarette company, for example, you're investing in Philip Morris. Philip Morris is not seeing that money. It's not going to fund cigarette research or marketing for cigarettes. I mean, you're buying that off of either another retailer or another institutional investor. So People have to make a decision on how they're going to invest in these things and what they can sleep with at night. But a lot of the trends are these big tech companies and these these big companies that are doing things that philosophically and morally I do not agree with. But then we need to look at, are they going to be making money? And I'm not telling people to invest in a, a tech stock, God forbid, but I mean, I'm just using this purely as an example in the, today's conversation. Yeah, well, and if it's like, any of the other uh, recent tech companies that had a an IPO or something, those guys have already cashed out. <laughs> that's a, another interesting trend that's taken place over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so is you used to have an IPO because you had a, a successful business on a small scale, you were profitable. And hey, you know, if I, if I can get some more money, maybe I can expand this nationwide or worldwide or something like that. And now it's, well, I've invested all this money into this failing company. They lose, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every quarter. But all we have to do is go public and then we can cash out and leave the retail traders holding the bag. Yeah, it's the greater fool fallacy. I actually read, listened, audio book to a book called Billion Dollar Loser, which is the story of WeWork. Holy God, what a dumpster fire of a company. That is just unbelievable. I've never seen anything like that. And then I just finished two nights ago, the one on Uber, the, the biography on the Uber founder. I love the product. I love the service. But oh my God, what a company. Like that is just, they just losing billions. Like emerging money. Talk about being physically sick. I don't know how these guys didn't have like gallstone issues or like kidney stones or something, you know, like yeah. Well, it, it was so easy for them to get money too with the the Federal Reserve suppressing interest rates and giving out all this free money. It was like, yeah, they could just keep going back to the like, hey, we need another uh another 250 billion to get through next quarter. And people were willing to give it to them. It's crazy. Well, this brings up a good way to segue. What are you seeing right now as interest rates have changed, as inflation has gone through the roof? The access to cheap capital has it's almost impossible right now. Like, I mean, people's access to capital has, has been greatly diminished over the last six to 18 months, let's say. Or what do you think people should understand who are thinking about entering the marketplace now? Well, entering the marketplace in what sort of capacity? 
Well, just, I mean, let's say that we have someone who's listening to this and going, yeah, you know, I want to live down in Mexico like Johnny. I want to retire early and I want to be a trader. I want to trade for a living, or maybe I have some exposure at a discount brokerage, but I think I want to spend a little bit more time on these types of things. Do you see that there is a big difference over the last, let's call it the last three years, opposed to the last, you know, since 2008, since the last time we've had a big crisis? Yeah, well, this is sort of the the highest interest rates have gotten in quite some time. And the dollar is really, really struggling against it. Even the, the Mexican peso, I think, is at like a six-year low right now or something like that. So three years ago, I was living really high on the hog when it was like 24 pesos to the dollar. And now we're back around uh, 16 or 17 or something like that. But I, I do think it it is a good idea to sort of go to places where the dollar still stretches a little farther than it does in the US. Mexico, I know we talked the last time about sort of the the, the tax issues, but that the cost of living is a lot cheaper. So if you're thinking about making a move and you you're just getting into investing and trading and something like that, it's nice to not have a lot of overhead. <laughs> I can live pretty pretty cheaply here and so you're not really taking a lot of risk. You don't feel like you have to take a lot of risk and try to make a lot of money quickly. You can sort of nibble away at it. In terms of access to capital, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, the property here, you don't really take out 30-year mortgages and things like that like you do in the U.S. You have to have the cash for the most part up front. So, yeah, I, I don't know. In this sort of interest rate environment, Real estate can be a, a decent investment, but it's tough when, you know, I don't think the market's really cleared in terms of where interest rates are and where prices are. We're seeing that like a, a, there's a big disconnect in the U.S. housing market where it's like the prices are still really high, but now the interest rates have more than doubled or the mortgage rates have more than doubled and the market really hasn't figured that out yet. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country, and the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico, and coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. Well, what I've been seeing is that a lot of larger corporations, a lot of the stocks, a lot of the way that they ran business up until this point, they don't understand clearly the landscape that we're heading into going into 2024 and beyond. So I think that a lot of the companies, you know, as are examples of of WeWork and Uber and these big tech companies, I don't think that these are going to be the types of places that are going to be able to thrive in this environment with very expensive money. They do very well when money is free, when money is cheap, and they can just inject whatever they need to acquire a customer. But I think that those days are behind us. Personally, I believe that we're really looking at real businesses, 
based on tangible assets, things that people can smell and touch and taste and feel and, and really understand. So I'm looking at commodities, energy stocks, precious metals, real businesses for lack of a better word. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right in that regard. It was a really fun ride, I'm sure, for these companies that that produce <laughs> nothing and lose money every month. And I think we will see a return to, if you want to call it normalcy, where you actually have to produce something in order and be profitable in order to, to have a successful company. Because yeah, people are going to tighten up their belts and it's not gonna, you're not just gonna be able to to walk in and, and get people to hand you all, all the money you need for a failing company that produces nothing. And yeah, I do have a lot of exposure to precious metals and commodities and things. I've I've always sort of believed in in that. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's the pendulum is going to swing back that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the trend we're going to see. Now, some of the teaching that you do in your business, you know, how you educate people is also on the Forex side. Maybe we can talk about currencies a little bit, what you're seeing in the different currency markets, maybe ones that are the best out of well, what's the saying the the best dirty shirt out of the hamper or the cleanest shirt in the hamper yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well most of the the forex trading i i do like i kind of alluded to earlier it's sort of a trading that works on any sort of chart it's not really based on any of the political factors and things like that so i try not to really pay attention when I'm actually trading to what's going on in the world. I just, I'm in the chart and what I see in the chart is how I trade it. But in terms of, yeah, currency, I have very little confidence in the dollar right now. I don't like the the position that the U.S. is in. The development with this whole BRICS agreement is kind of scary if you're heavily exposed to the U.S. dollar. I think we're going to see a pretty big shift in the way business is done internationally. And yeah, the the dollar being the world reserve currency, I think that is also going to come to an end pretty soon. I don't know what pretty soon actually means, but there's no way that we can get away with what we've been doing as a country for so long without having these repercussions that we're starting to see sort of cracks, you know, happening with other countries being like, hey, you know, we don't really need to transact in these dollars anymore. We can get together and we can get exposure to South America and China and Russia and all these other markets. And the U.S. isn't really producing anything. So all we produce is these dollars that we send out abroad. And I think they're finally getting wise to it. So what would be a prediction from your side? And you can either do a prediction on timeline or a prediction in end result, but a prediction in what we're going to see out of these bricks or possibly a new reserve currency in the world. Well, I know there's talks about them going to a, a gold-backed currency for bricks. I just don't see that. I, I mean, that would be wonderful from our perspective, but I just don't see governments actually shackling themselves like that. I do think that the BRICS agreement is going to sort of create this alternative to the U.S. dollar nationwide. And I think that's really going to hurt the U.S. I, I don't know exactly what the U.S. endgame is other than just sort of let's try to keep this party going as long as we can. I don't know. In terms of timeline, I would say probably by the end of this decade, I think you're going to see a, a major shift in world currencies and the dollar's reign as king will be gone by then. Wow. 
Yeah, it's difficult to try to imagine the repercussions of something like that. To understand that, you know, if settlements are not done in US dollars, if we don't have the petrodollar, if they can't keep exporting all of the inflation, what is the world going to look like? Definitely, I think it's important to start exploring this idea. I don't personally, I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. You know, I have some people who are doomsday and they think that literally tomorrow or next week, the dollar is going to shit the bed and that's it. And the party's over. I think it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think it is important to start having the conversation now and doing what we can to position ourselves in a scenario where that does come true. Because I think it is, you can only kick the can down the road for so long. Like, I mean, we're going to run out of road here. So we need to have these things set up now and continue to put them into place over the rest of the decade, as you said. Right. Yeah. And they've been able to keep this game going a lot longer than I ever thought possible. Um, So I've always been surprised at how much inflation they can create, how much money they can print and how long. I mean, if you look at Japan, they've been doing this, too, forever. So, yeah, it does take a really long time for these things to play out. It feels like we're on the precipice of something big, but I've said that before. (laughs) Like I said, I've been saying it for 12 years. But yeah, there's just, even when you just think of interest rates, like we're trying to raise interest rates, right? To get inflation under control. If they keep going higher, you know, we're going to be spending a trillion dollars just on debt service of the bonded debt for the US. And I mean, that's just, that's crazy. There's no way that we can survive playing a a game like that. It's just something has to change. Like something's going to break eventually. Well, to be honest with you, I think that things are breaking. How many bank failures have we had in the United States just in 2023? Yeah, That is breakage. That is exactly what that looks like. And far as my understanding it goes, we've actually had larger and as many bank or more bank failures this year than we had 2008, 2009 in the financial crisis. Yeah, and they were bigger. Hardly anybody's talking about it. Nobody's seems really all that concerned. You know, all this, it's transitory and strong job numbers and stuff. And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't I think it's just a different type of psyop that's happening with mainstream media and what they're covering opposed to 10 years ago. Yeah. And it does make you wonder what their end game is because they are starting to push for these central bank digital currencies. And Yeah, if I had to gun to my head, I had to come up with a prediction. Like that's what their end game is going to be. You know, they want more control over you. And the best way to do that is to control your finances, control where you get your money from. And that scares the living daylights out of me, actually. Well, okay. So here's an interesting question for you based on the fact that you were an institutional investor and worked with a large billion dollar company. Do you think that these large investment banks are just going to go quietly into the night? I don't. I don't think that, you know, that they're just going to let their businesses be ruined and the Fed's going to take over everything. No. Yeah. They're going to have to get on the right side of the trade. I'm kind of reminded of the, the 2008 financial crisis when all of those investment banks were on the wrong side of these <laughs> these derivative contracts. And then they were able to basically bullshit people long enough to get on the right side of the trade and then admit that, yeah, okay, this is where we should go with this. So I think you'll start to see the larger institutions get in bed with the government even more so than they are and sort of position themselves so that, yeah, if the end game is 
this total control over the financial industry through digital currencies, getting rid of cash and everything like that. They aren't going to allow that to happen until they're positioned correctly. Yeah. Timeline on this one will be very interesting. Once again, I have lots of clients who believe that tomorrow it's all going to come down. I think that there are certain test cases in the world of different countries. I'm considerably more worried about Canada than than some of the other places. I think that that is a test case of of how far we can push communism and socialism in a country and what will people take, what will people accept. It's going to be a hard one. It's going to be a difficult one to watch. And I, I try not to plan on the end of the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because even if it, okay, yeah, the world ends, it's like, all right, what good is your plan? Even if the world does end, like whatever plan you came up with is probably not going to be worth much. So yeah, the idea that this is all going to end tomorrow or something, I wouldn't concern myself with that as much as, yeah, taking like a, a methodical approach, starting to try to figure out where we're going and position yourself to be there when things meet up or like down the road. But yeah, it's certainly a, a very interesting experiment that we've had with these fiat currencies. And I don't think it's going to end well. And it, they haven't in historically, you know, this isn't our first time with a fiat currency. You know, you, you've heard that quote, not worth a continental. So I, I think I'm not optimistic for where it's going to end, but I don't think it, you're going to see just like this epic collapse overnight. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that it's super important that people understand these concepts, position themselves in the best way that we can and not put it off. I'm not saying put this off because just because I don't think that we're going to see a collapse tomorrow doesn't mean that I think we should put off our decisions for a year or five years or 10 years. I think that people should position themselves absolutely the best that they can right now with the information that is available. But after you've made some strategic decisions with your finances, with your residency, with your tax planning, with these types of things, then go and enjoy your life. I think that it's super important. Like that's the nice thing about being an expat. It's like I'm down here enjoying sunshine, beautiful weather, eating fantastic food, meeting cool people, drinking really good red wine. And it's like, once you got it set up, then go and live your life. Some of the clients that I work with, it's like they research, they make moves, they're in a good position, and then they spend the rest of their life doom scrolling all day long and just reading the bad news. And I'm like, please go outside and get some sunshine. Like, please, I will pay you. Just you got to enjoy your life as well. Because what you and I want, John, has no bearing on what is going to happen in the rest of the world, what these politicians and these psychopaths are going to do to us. So you better enjoy the time that you have on planet Earth right now. Yeah. And th that's a good point. You want to be prepared for what's going to happen. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was able to make this move is because I started to prepare for it years in advance. You know, I knew I was kind of unhappy with where I was and my job and everything like that. So I started to create alternative streams of income to give yourself options for when things do go bad and you want to you want to pick up and move or you want to change whatever is going on you can't just do that at the drop of a dime and i think a lot of people learn that during the whole covid fiasco which is sort of the the catalyst for me coming down here to mexico i didn't want to be locked down in chicago and the only reason i was able to do that was because for you know 4 or 5 years before then i was developing skills and creating alternative streams of income and alternative options for myself to take advantage of when the time was right.
So what does life look like for you now in Mexico opposed to what it looked like when you were in Chicago? Oh God, it, I am so much happier now. I mean, if you had talked to me like four or five years ago, or if I had talked to a psychiatrist or something, they probably would have told you I was depressed. But I compare it to being like in an abusive relationship where as soon as you get away from that abusive person, then you kind of realize how bad things were for you. And just being out here, working for myself, being able to create your own schedule, do what you want to do. There's nothing that compares to it. And when I first came down and I think it was the summer of 2020, it was like July of 2020. I'm in a, a pretty nice area, right? There's all these retired Americans and Canadians that come down here for like, you know, there's snowbirds, they come down in December and they stay for a few months. And I'm, I'm sort of thinking about my life and I'm like, all right, yeah, I guess if I work for another 30 years and everything goes right, I follow this prescription that they've come up for life in America and you retire at 65, you get your social security. I can come down here and be one of these old people that walks across the pool during the day. And then you go have dinner at five o'clock and you're in bed by nine, or I could do, you know, the opposite of 95% of the people and take some risks, try to create my own thing. And I can be down here now doing all the things that I want to do. You know, I I can go spear fishing. I can go rock climbing, go for a hike, have fun. And yeah, I, I just think that formula is so it's antiquated and it's backwards. I mean, if anything, I can sit in front of a computer and click a mouse when I'm 65, you know, but I only have a, a few more good years left in these knees. So yeah, it's been great. I like having the freedom to do what you want to do. I just got back from Europe, actually. I spent a month in Europe. I just had an opportunity to go. And yeah, being able to work from wherever you wherever you are, as long as you have an internet connection, there's no freedom like that. Libertarians especially talk a lot about, yeah, freedom this, freedom that. But it's like, if you can't pick up and leave when you want to leave and you don't have enough, like the financial means to do what you want to do, how much freedom can you really have? Well, I always find it very interesting when I have a new private client who lives in Los Angeles or something like that. And they live there because that's where their job is and they're making their money, but then their rent is like so expensive and the cost of living is ridiculous and everything. And they have to have a vehicle and they have to have all these things. And it's like, actually, if you come down here to Latin America or Southeast Asia or even certain parts of Europe, I mean, cost of living can be what? half, a quarter, maybe. And it's like, well, what do you need to do to supplement your income or what type of investments or trading or or real estate do you have to own that it's going to be kicking off cash flow that is going to pay for your existence down in one of these countries? And then if you can have that, actually, you're going to have a lot more. You're going to have more freedom on your time. You're going to have more freedom of your movement. You have more freedom over what you can say and what you can do. And then you're actually master of your own universe and control how you spend your money. Like, yeah. like, I mean, there's, there's so many advantages to being an expat and leaving Chicago and moving down to Mexico or leaving Toronto and moving down to Panama. I mean, yeah, it takes a, a mind shift for sure, because you sort of had this beaten into your brain since kindergarten, you know, this is what you do. You go to school and you go to college and you get the job and then you do this and you, 
it's all sort of designed to keep you dependent in one way or another. Like, yes, you get a job and then you buy a house and that house is like an anchor and it's a liability more often than not. And yeah, you can't leave because this is where your job is. And in order to leave, then you got to find a new job and you got to sell the house. And it's, I just think it's a horrible formula. I, I remember trying to explain it to my parents because, you know, that generation, it worked out great for them. My mom was so worried about me. She's like, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. I'm worried about you. I was like, you should have been worried about me when I was in Chicago. Not now. Now I think I have it figured out, but you have to kind of go and do it to realize that it's possible. I, I never thought it was possible until I stayed here for like a month and a half. And I was like, I think I can just, I think I can keep doing this. Let me see how this goes. And it's it's been a great ride. That's amazing. And kind of going back to what we were saying about 2008, 2009, imagine we're going to go through another massive financial collapse, which personally, I believe we will. And you were working for your nine to five job doing fixed income in Chicago. What do you think is going to happen to your position then? Probably, if, if we look at the last financial crisis, the layoffs were insane. I mean, thousands upon thousands of layoffs. Yeah. People that were on the brink of retirement saw their 401ks get chopped in half and had to go back to work or put retirement off. You never know when that event is going to happen, but they are going to. I mean, everything happens in cycles. So I'm not a big fan of this formula that they've come up with, this life formula for life in the US, where it's like even best case scenario, you retire at 65 and you get your social security. It's like you're still dependent on the government. Like, do you get all your social security at once? Like, no, you got to come back every month. It's like they're your pimp and you only give your girls just enough to make it to the next month because you want them dependent on you. And the, the sooner you can create avenues to break away from that abusive relationship, the better. Yeah. And now with the advent of things like Zoom, we're using Zoom for our call today and all the automation software and the ability to build websites very easy and scale on social media and any type of business or online program that you want to create, you know, you can teach people the things that you used to do in your corporate career or help or consult with these types of things and diversify your income. And then even if you don't get it 100% right, you don't need to make a million dollars to have a decent life living in Mexico. I mean, you could be on the beach and I don't know, make a small fraction of that. And then like you said, go spearfishing, go hiking and stuff. Sounds all right to me. And it costs almost nothing to get started that way. The barriers to entry are very low for what you're probably spending a night. Like you take your wife out to dinner or something in, in California, you could start a business online for the cost of one meal and just, you know, chip away at it. You're not going to make $500,000 all at once or something, but you know, a couple of hundred bucks a month here and there. And then you keep growing that that snowballs into things. And before you know it, yeah, I mean, if you're making a couple thousand dollars a month in Mexico, you're living pretty well. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, yeah, that's crazy. And that's not hard to do. Yeah, exactly. And, oh, by the way, there's massive tax breaks if you're an American expat and you're living outside of the United States. There's big ways that you can save on your federal tax bill. Johnny, amazing. I really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you so much. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to learn about your trading programs and what you teach, where can we send them? 
Yeah. Well, so I, I do the Pedaling Fiction podcast twice a week. That's on all the normal platforms. I have a Substack. It's Pedaling Fiction Substack. You can go check that out. I did just put out a trading series on there. It's got a, a four-part introductory series to technical analysis that I think everybody should check out. Just even if you're not interested in it, it's very basic introductory level things. It's not very complicated. And it's knowledge that you should have. And then after that, I put out, well, actually, I still have a couple more videos to do for it. But yeah, five or six trading techniques that I've done in the past. So yeah, go check that out. I, I try to do a Substack articles at least once a week. And those are, you know, politics, current events, things like that. But those are probably the two best places to find me, the podcast and the Substack. And if I have anything else, I'll just announce it on there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for having me on. We have seen a ton of movement in the Bitcoin markets recently, and the influx of new wallet addresses and people coming into the space is insane. However, there are some serious privacy and security issues by using traditional exchanges and methods of Bitcoin. That's why I want to recommend every one of my subscribers to check out myprivatebitcoin.com. It is a detailed course on everything related to privacy and Bitcoin. This is for experienced people to the crypto space all the way to people new to Bitcoin. Go to myprivatebitcoin.com. And for expat money listeners, you will receive 25% off the program. Go to myprivatebitcoin.com to learn more. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.